I felt so bad for him because I wasn't the only one that had been lied to. He had been lied to. So many people have been lied to. And I just, I will never understand why you lie about a human being. You know, just it's so much easier to say, hey, this is what happened. This is how you came to be. I don't understand why she had to create all these lies instead of telling the truth. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to meet Linda, who called me from St. Petersburg, Florida. When Linda's adoptive mother found herself single-parenting her two daughters, they moved to the South, where her family shunned the children for being adopted. In reunion with her birth mother, Linda found a woman who had a tough story to share about her conception, who was seemingly afraid of the truth coming out to her family, and who went to extreme criminal lengths to try to make Linda lose custody of her own daughter. Through it all, Linda stands strong on the firm base her adoptive mother gave her. This is Linda's journey. In 1961, Linda's adoptive parents were planning their family and expecting children. Her adoptive mother was pregnant with twins. But when a tragic accident took the lives of her unborn babies and she had to have a hysterectomy, the removal of a woman's reproductive organs, the young couple's plans to have children vanished. Linda's adoptive father had an older daughter from his first marriage. And one year before Linda's adoption, her adoptive sister was brought into the family. Linda was born in 1966 in Toledo, Ohio, and was soon adopted into the family, too. I was chosen because they said I looked like my father. And a couple of weeks after I was selected, my parents were told, if you want to forego this adoption, you can. You don't have to take this baby. And they asked why. They said, well, she has a genetic blood disorder. At the time, it was called F.A. Bartz. Now it's known as alpha thalassemia hemoglobin H disease, meaning I have three deletions in my hemoglobin chain. And they were told, if you don't want this baby, you don't have to have her. Basically saying this is a defective human. You don't have to take her. Mm -hmm. But my parents said, no, we're taking her. We want this child. She's going to need help. We'll take care of her. Mm -hmm. So in my parents' family in Ohio, my dad's family, everybody was fine with adoption. I remember hearing stories. Now, my dad died when I was two years old, and I lived in Ohio until I was age eight, and it was wonderful. My relatives knew we were adopted, and my sister was half Chinese. My mother would dress us alike to try to pass us off as twins. Didn't go over well, and I would always say, we're not twins. Don't say that. We're not twins. So everybody was welcoming of it, though. They would know my mom didn't hide it. She was happy that she had children. Mm -hmm. And when my father was asked, which of your kids are adopted? He'd say, oh, I don't remember. Oh, that's really interesting, huh? So they were happy with it. Before you go forward, let me just take you back for a, a quick moment. Do you remember when you heard the story of your mom's car accident and the loss of her children? 
I remember hearing that when I was about six years old. Mm -hmm. We were in Toledo, still living there at the time, and we were going over a certain railroad track area, and my mother said, this is where I had a car accident. And I said, when was that? And I thought she meant recently, you know, at that time when something had happened. And she said, no, that's why I have you and Patty, with Patty being my adopted sister. And I asked her what happened. She said, a few years before you were born, I was pregnant. I was going to have twins. And I was sitting, waiting for the train to go by. And a drunk driver hit me. I was slammed into the police car in front of me. And the police car hit the train. Oh, my God. And the impact just, you know, being kind of bookended in this accident she was taken to the hospital she had a broken back she was told she wouldn't walk again they did an emergency hysterectomy because she was bleeding and she lost the babies Hmm. and i just remember feeling such empathy for her even as a child how sad that must be because i knew how protective she was of me and my sister she was a good single mom you know she didn't want to be a single mom with two young kids right next to each other in age but she did it and she did it with great aplomb she handled the household she worked she raised us and she made sure she took care of us as best she could and that i can only imagine how good she would have been with her own children Mm -hmm. it would have been awesome yeah yeah i can imagine Do you identify that your mother used to dress you up like you were twins? And it's and even though she was half Chinese, it sounds like in part of her mind, she was still trying to replace the twins that she unfortunately lost. Like she had her heart set on having twins. Did you get that? You know, I actually I did. I actually thought about that when I was much older, much older, but. I remember she, my mother was a great seamstress as well. She would sew our outfits and I was a tomboy. I liked to get dirty, play out in the yard. And my sister was very girly girl. So my mom was happy with that. She went with the dresses and the girly girl outfits, which I just absolutely couldn't stand. And people would say, oh, look at the twins, you know, kind of quizzically with me being blonde, blue eyed. And my sister being half Chinese with the dark hair and the dark eyes. And she had almond-shaped eyes. You could see it in her features. And my mother would say, yes, they're fraternal. And I didn't know what that meant until I was a teenager. And I said, what in the world? Why would you tell people we were fraternal twins? And she said, you were so close in age, only a year apart. And you were almost the same size. So there was no problem in dressing you alike. And I still think, though, the loss of her own twins, she never got over it. And I don't blame her. I understand that. So I don't necessarily think my sister and I were there to supplant them, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was in her heart and mind that twins yeah. were going to be her future. And right, you guys were as close as she could get. That's really interesting. But it sounds like she was a wonderful mom. Wow. She was. She was fiercely independent. <laughs> and she expected you to toe the line too, which mm-hmm. is good. That helped foster my independence as I got older. One day when Linda was eight years old, their mother told the kids they were moving to Alabama the following week. Linda was stunned. 
Their single mother wanted to be near her family as the family in Toledo had all moved away. They were destined for a small town called Hartford, which Linda described as having about 800 people at the time, a Piggly Wiggly convenience store, one traffic light, and a lot of churches. When Linda heard the news of the move, she declared, Well, I'm not going. And she said, Well, what's your plan? I said, I'll just find my real mother and stay with her, which is the first time I ever brought up, I'll find my real mother. Wow. And she said, well, you need to go ahead and start looking because we only have a week left. And if you don't find her in a week, you're going with me. (laughs) So I said, oh, okay. And of course, I did not launch a search for my real mother, as I called it. We moved to Alabama, albeit begrudgingly on my part. And just the change, it was like night and day after being in Ohio, where my dad's family and our friends were so accepting of us. It was a whole different story in Alabama. How so? I had, oh, it was bad. (laughs) I had a Southern Baptist preacher uncle who was very, do it my way, my way only, my way or the highway. And I had an aunt who said, oh, Grace, why are you bringing those adopted kids here? They represent sin. Mm, mm, And that kind of set the tone for things. It was our adoptions were weaponized against us by this particular aunt. And I never understood why she was so nosy in our family affairs with my mother. I think that was just her personality, but it was you know, if you kids don't behave, we're sending you back. We don't have to keep you. You're not our family. And I had a cousin who died of leukemia. He was a few years younger than I. And when he died, she said, well, why couldn't it have been one of Grace's girls? They're oh, not our family. Gosh. And hearing these things, and I know it hurt my mother, and she was constantly on the defense with this aunt and uncle. And I said, can we just move back to Ohio? This, I don't like it here. This is not fun. And she said, well, we're not going to move back. We'll just limit our time with them, which we tried to do. But in this small town and the family saying they wanted to get to know us, but it was so passive aggressive in the way that they did. I remember a family reunion. Now, I was the youngest of 33 grandchildren. So that tells you there's a lot of people at this Mm. family reunion. And I remember them studying my sister and I, and my sister knew she was adopted, but she didn't like to discuss it. In her mind, that was a taboo topic. And our adoptive mother was her mother, period. She would never consider anything else. And I remember what I know now were racial epithets used against her you know and it was it i remember my mother crying at one point because someone had referred to my sister with a bad term and with me they'd say well that one looks like she's german maybe she's finnish maybe she's swedish and it felt really bizarre to have people circle around you and try to guess what you are. And I remember that time being really the first time I felt very uncomfortable in my own skin because my mother's family, they were redheaded, Irish, freckled. And my sister and I clearly did not match these people. 
So it was difficult. And that's the first time I look back at it now that I really felt my self-esteem plummet. And I, I didn't feel as strong or secure in myself as I had previously. Mm. And at eight years old, that's a lot because you're just a few years away from puberty and you have people talking about you as though you're less than them. They tell you openly, you're not our family. You don't belong here. We can send you back. These are harsh messages and they're the wrong messages to send anyone, especially children when they're forming their sense of identity. Who am I anyway? Yeah. And prior to that, I was secure with being adopted because I was told you're a chosen child. You look like your dad. You're a daddy's girl. He wanted you so bad. Patty's a mommy's girl and our family is the way it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then going to Alabama, it was just flipped in a way that I just could not deal with. Yeah. I'm sorry. That sounds like that was incredibly rough because as you've said, children don't have a whole lot. It's basically everything that the adults give them. It's material right. things, right? It's your right. clothes, it's your toys, and it's the reinforcement of whatever right. you're told. And hopefully it's positive, you know, good job, good try, mm -hmm. keep going, you're going to be great. But unfortunately, you heard a lot of the opposite. You don't belong. Yeah. You're strange to us. You're from sin. We're not connected. And like very emphatically telling them, telling you, you yeah. don't belong here. That's that's pretty awful. And you're right. It is at that time of building a foundation as a child. That is absolutely the wrong thing any child needs to hear. And I'm sorry you guys had to go through that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. May I ask? How did your mother talk to you guys about what you heard versus her feelings for you all as your mother? Initially, she presented it. She said, don't listen to what she says. She's just a bitter old woman. And I would kind of laugh at that. And I'd say, yeah, she's just being mean. She's not nice. And I'd say, she's jealous of us because you got to pick your kids. And she had to take what she was stuck with. And my, my mother said, yep, that's true. <laughs> she said, but don't get into her mindset. Don't say that her kids weren't worthy of being chosen from someone if they had to be. She said, just rise above it, which was an awfully difficult thing to do. Because not only did we have this in the family with this aunt who just clearly was not comfortable with adoption. My sister was being picked on at school because Southeast Alabama, you don't have a lot of Asian American children, if any. And there were people that would ridicule my sister. And as she grew into a teenager, she had an eating disorder and horrible anxiety. And I think a lot of that stems from what she absorbed through being bullied at school and bullied by our aunt, because that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And my mom would just tell us, just ignore her, don't listen to her, referring to our aunt. But it was there for years. I mean, that's what we grew up in. It's hard to ignore. And then the uncle was fixated on, oh, you have to get these children baptized. They're from sin. They were born out of wedlock. They represent sin. You must baptize them. My mother said, relax. We have them baptized when they were babies. On the day of their adoption, we had christening and baptism. And he goes, but in what church? 
And she said, well, they're Lutheran. He goes, oh, no, that that won't do. They have to be in my church, Southern Baptist. And I remember my mother telling him, basically, put a lid on it. These are my kids. I've had enough. She had backbone. She stood up to him. So she had to walk a fine line, though, with taking care of her kids and protecting us and still having to communicate with this family that we had moved down to live near because the plan was originally, oh, Grace, we'll help you with the kids. And boy, that sure backfired on us once we got in Alabama. After moving her young girls to Alabama with the hope for help and support from her family, Grace's relocation had turned into an abusive disaster for her two adoptees. Linda said it was confusing to her as to why her extended adopted family would portray that they were going to help with Grace's kids if they didn't believe in adoption in the first place. It felt like a trap. Linda said her grandmother, Grace's mother, was the only one who welcomed the adoptees into the family. Linda adored her grandmother partially because with 33 grandchildren, she remembered the names of the oldest and the youngest, Linda. I would say, I'm adopted. She goes, oh, I know that. I said, do you like that? And she goes, do you? And I said, yes, because it gave me you. And she said, well, then it gave me you. So we're good with it. Oh, my gosh. She's amazing. So she went out of her way to really make my sister and I feel comfortable. And I loved spending time with my grandmother. And she would even tell me not to listen to the aunt. And she says, oh, she's an old fuddy-duddy. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, oh, it just means she just doesn't know what she's saying half the time, so ignore her. <laughs> so that became my stance. I would, The minute that aunt would start speaking, I think my mind would just kind of go another direction. And, you know, la, 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 I don't hear you. <laughs> so my grandmother and my mother kind of worked together to keep my sister and I in the right frame of mind. So we didn't totally diminish our self-esteem or self-worth. Mm -hmm. That's really great. And between your grandmother and your mother, they deserve a lot of high praise. Like this is a toxic situation. And it sounds like your mom did really well to make sure that you guys understood that she loved you, that that person was wrong, and that mm -hmm. your your family was just fine the way it was. And and she sounds like she yes. had a lot of strength. It's really, really cool to hear. She did. I'll tell you that. My mother, Grace Brown, if you hear me say Grace or Grace Baby, I would there were times when I'd try to call her, I'd say, Mother, and she didn't hear me, and I'd say, Grace baby. And she'd look. I don't know why I started doing that. But it would get her attention. But she was fiercely independent. Linda was very curious about her birth mother from when she was seven or eight years old. She had fully understood that Grace had not given birth to her, so Linda peppered her mom with questions. Grace committed to sharing whatever she could remember about Linda's adoption. While she never met Linda's birth mother, she remembered her initials, S.W., and that her name was either Susan or Sherry. Grace shared that Linda's birth mother lived back in Ohio, and if she wanted to search when she was older, Grace would support her search. When Linda was 12 years old, she was a fan of the show Unsolved Mysteries, never missing an episode from week to week. She watched the show hoping that someone was looking for her. When their midweek church service ended close to the time the show would air, Linda would beg her mother to hurry home. Grace finally asked Linda why the rush, so Linda admitted she wanted to see if her other mother was looking for her on the program. 
Linda's childhood obsession with the show went on for a while, so one day Grace asked if anyone was looking for her on the show that week. Linda dejectedly replied with a no. With encouragement, Grace told Linda that perhaps they would look for her another time, then redirected the conversation with excitement to ask if there were any aliens or UFOs on the show that week. Grace spoke to Linda in ways that reinforced that her curiosity to know this other woman was okay. When she got older, Linda eventually shared with Grace that she would like to learn more about her genetic blood disorder, asking if it would upset Grace if she started to search. She said, no, because I understand it's human nature, it's curiosity, and you're entitled to know this. So she was always very open. And the fact that we already knew my sister's background, that it was the family next door who had arranged the adoption, my mother wanted me to have that same peace of mind as well. But her family, of course, the same aunt and uncle, told me, I'm a traitor. Look at everything this family has done for you. Look what we've done to welcome you here, which was horribly ironic. There was no welcome whatsoever. <laughs> right. They said, look at everything we've done for you, and you're going to betray us by looking for the trash that you came from. Oh. There's a reason the trash got taken out, and you're going to stay trash. Oh, and my that's gosh. The, oh, it was, it was horrible. That's the way they talked to me. And I said, I'm not trash, and I'm not trying to hurt anyone, but I have a right to know where I came from. And it was, oh, if you think that's so important, then you don't need to be around us. And when I was in my early 20s and the early 90s, I had a cousin who died of AIDS. And this particular preacher uncle said, anyone in the family who goes to that funeral is dead to me. I went to the funeral. And of course, after that, he cut off all contact with me, which frankly did not bother me, mm -hmm. to be truthful. Yeah. And when my mother died in 1997, I did not know she had died. I lived near her, kept contact with her, but it was over a weekend. And I was reading the paper in the morning, and it was my mother's obituary with the funeral being the day before. No one had told me she had died. Oh, my God. And I called the funeral home. I got a pastor with me. I called the funeral home, and I called my uncle. The funeral home said, my uncle said, do not tell anyone. Do not tell Linda Kay, me, Linda. He called me Linda Kay. Do not tell her that her mother died. She doesn't belong here. I called my sister. Why on earth didn't you call me? And she said, Uncle Leonard said he kept trying to contact you, trying to call you, and he couldn't reach you. Wow. So he that was his final jab at me, mm. just not mm. to let me go to my mother's funeral, which was one of the worst things ever, just reading it in the paper and him lying to my sister and telling people, do not tell her her mother died. Yeah. That's a and special brand of awful right there. I mean, that's just, it was, it was horrible. Mm, and mm, then mm. he just, I, I, I just thought, okay, fine. I'm happy being dead to those people. I don't need this in my life. And that was really around the time after my mother was gone. I, I just felt so lost. I wasn't looking for a, re a replacement family. I just thought, okay, now's the time. I want to know what I came from. I think after this, I could handle anything. I have no great expectations. I just want to know. Linda told me that back then, Ohio had one of the most twisted adoption laws ever, to quote her expression. Anyone born from 1965 and earlier 
had full access to their original birth certificates, or OBCs. Anyone born after 1997 also had access to their OBCs. But anyone born between 1965 and 1997 could only receive non-identifying information about their birth family. Linda was born in 1966, one year after the cutoff to get her OBC. Linda applied for any adoption information the state of Ohio could provide her. And I got back from Lucas County in Ohio from a social worker, and I promise you, it was one line. Birth mother was a white female. Are you like, That's you, it? That was it. And I'm like, duh, you don't say. Oh, my gosh. So I wrote back and I said, may I have more information? And I kept writing. No one would respond. So I read that I could file a petition with the court to get my whole adoption file because I have a genetic blood disorder for which I may need blood transfusions or organ and tissue donations. So I thought, okay, this will work. This is how I'll get those records. Nope, no luck. It took two years for the judge to tell me, nope, you're alive. You've had transfusions and you survived, so you don't need these records. And I wrote back to Lucas County. I figured a last-ditch effort. Short of that, I was thinking maybe I should just move to Ohio and look. But I found a sympathetic social worker who sent me more information. And I called her, and she said, she was crying. She said, I'm looking at your file. I have all this in front of me, but I can't tell you. But she would drop hints like where she lives. Well, she's not in Toledo. She's not in Lucas County. She moved to another county. It rhymes with Schmood, which is Wood County in Ohio. (laughs) So she kind of played a little game with me like that. And I was able to glean information from her. I said, now my mother told me my birth mother's initials were SW. And she'd say, bingo. (laughs) Oh, okay. And I'd say, is her name Susan? No, nobody's named Susan anymore. I said, Sherry? She said, kind of, but not. I said, Sharon? She goes, bingo. So she wasn't necessarily giving up the ghost, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But And she even told me, she said, if you ever report this, I'll lose my job and I could be arrested. And I said, nope, I don't see, I don't hear, I don't know anything. I'm not going to tell anything. I love hearing those stories. That's amazing. She helped me out tremendously. Around the year 2000, when the Internet's usefulness was growing, Linda found an adoption reunion search website where she hoped some clues could be found about her search. Linda entered identifying information about herself, like her name and birth date, the hospital information for where she was born, and whatever other scant information she had about her birth mother. Pretty soon, Linda received an email, but not from a relative. The message was from a woman who drove a school bus in Wood County, Ohio, and she thought she knew who Linda's birth mother was. The woman asked if Linda had two brothers by her birth mother, but Linda had no idea what her birth family structure was. The bus driver said the woman she was thinking of had two sons, one a year younger than Linda and another younger still. The woman described where the family lived, on a road near an ice cream parlor, and she provided their home address. And I, I was nervous. And I said, well, what have I got to lose? I'm five states away. If it doesn't work out, if it's not the right person, what have I got to lose? 
but if I don't try this, it'll drive me crazy. I will drive myself nuts. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a letter and I sent two pictures, one from when I was baby. I think I was about two years old in that picture. And one of how I looked at the time. And I got a response probably, I think it was about six weeks later because I didn't hear anything for a month and I kind of wrote it off as well. Maybe it's the wrong one. Oh no, she sent a picture and we looked a lot alike. I mean, you could see it. There's, yeah. You know how they'd say in Southeast Alabama, oh, you mark them babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she marked that baby. (laughs) So she told me her name. And she said, yep, you had a birthday coming up. And she said, I'll tell you someday about your birth father, but I'm the right person. And I knew you would look for me. I knew you would eventually come back to me. And Mm -hmm. I was really excited. The letter had a good tone to it. Mm -hmm. And I responded, thank you for contacting me. You know, gave her some information. And by that time, I'd have my daughter. I said, I have a six-month-old daughter. And she was born premature. My daughter was born at 28 weeks, weighed one pound, seven ounces. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And when she was born, I found out that she, too, had thalassemia like I do. And was that a factor in her premature birth at all? I don't know anything about this thalassemia. Now, thalassemia is not unlike sickle cell anemia is. Mm -hmm. And they kind of work similar. I have three deletions in my hemoglobin chain. And I have gone through periods of transfusion dependency through my life, but now I'm doing better. I haven't had a transfusion since 2019, which Mm -hmm. is great. My daughter has one deletion and she's done really well. She's never needed a transfusion. Uh, She has perpetually low iron levels, which Mm -hmm. is not uncommon. We don't have the hemoglobin to support it. So she does well, though. Her hemoglobin, her other blood numbers are well. But the reason she was premature, it likely stems from my thalassemia. I developed HELP syndrome, which occurs in less than 7% of pregnancies. And there is research suggesting that blood disorders, any kind of anemia, thalassemia, might spur HELP syndrome. And my blood pressure the day my daughter was born, my blood pressure was 270 over 180. My liver burst. And I had a seizure and almost died from it because HELP syndrome, the only way to cure HELP syndrome or stop it rather is to deliver the baby. So they had no choice but to deliver her to save my life and hers. And she was in the NICU for seven and a half weeks. They sent her home at three and a half pounds, which terrified me. She was so small. But here she is now, 21 years old, happy, healthy, and 10 feet tall and bulletproof. (laughs) Awesome. Could you just tell me quickly, clarify, what is HELP syndrome? Is this a preeclampsia thing? It's right there with it. It is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. H-E-L-L-P is how it's termed. Thank you. And I did have eclampsia with that, which is what caused the seizure. But HELP syndrome, they're not necessarily sure how it starts. There's more information about it now than when I had my daughter. Thankfully, it Mm -hmm. helps a lot of women to understand. But it's, 
you have your organs swell. My my foot, I already have big feet. I wear an 11 for Pete's sake. <laughs> my foot swelled so bad, I had to wear a size 13 shoe. Oh, wow. Mm. And I knew things weren't right. And I'd go to the doctor and they'd say, oh, it's just normal pregnancy. And I said, I've never been pregnant, but I, I can't imagine anything about this being normal. And sure enough, it wasn't. It was HELP syndrome. Wow. Well, I'm glad you guys are both okay. That sounds like that was well, thank crazy you. traumatic. Wow. It was. So I had taken us off track with my curiosity about HELP syndrome and the ordeal Linda had been through to give birth to her daughter. Linda had always been focused on finding her birth mother, never really thinking about her birth father. Linda and her birth mother corresponded through letters, and the woman divulged a little bit more with each correspondence. Linda knew that thalassemia was passed down on her maternal side, so when they connected, Linda was able to ask if her birth mother had any blood disorders like she did. Linda's birth mother didn't have any challenges, but her mother, Linda's maternal grandmother, had anemia and she was frequently sick from it. Other relatives also had bloodborne disorders that seemed to be recurring clinical challenges in the family, which sometimes seemed to skip generations. Linda was enjoying the process of corresponding with her birth mother, and even though she was dealing with her own health and that of her daughter, Connor, things were going well. We were getting to know each other, and she would divulge a little bit more with every letter. She said, your birth father, she said, I want to tell you the truth. I was in love with him, she said, but I was 18 and he was 14. And I was like, whoa. whoa. When I read that, I thought, okay, that's a bit much. And then she wrote another time, she said, I hope that didn't bother you. She said, but I want you to know I had been with him for two years before you were conceived. And I did the math in my head and I said, okay, this is scary. He was 12 and she was 16 when they got together, which is, you know, let's be honest, that's against the law. That's statutory rape and she wrote me another letter saying that the reason she had to relinquish me was because her parents found out that she was with this younger boy and they didn't want her to get arrested for statutory rape. So according to my birth mother, she did not tell them she was pregnant until she was seven months gestation. And she said they did not respond well. She said her mother tried to beat her, tried to kill me. And then they sent her to a home for unwed mothers in Toledo, which was near the downtown area. And when she had me, she was taken to Mercy Hospital. And she, according to her, she had to room with a married woman that was supposed to teach her, this is how you're supposed to have your children. And she said they denied her any pain medication so she would remember her sin. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And again, I'm like, if I hear sin associated with me another time, I'm going to lose it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from hearing that from my aunt, now my birth mother, and she said, but I'm an atheist. I don't believe in sin. Like, okay, okay. And then she wrote me a letter asking me if I would come and visit her. And this was in the summer of 2002 when she asked me if I would come visit her. I said, well, I'll have to arrange it a little further out. I said, what about in the fall? And she said, well, when's Connor's birthday? I said, it's in November. She said, can you come up here for her first birthday? I said, I think we can do that. 
And turns out Connor's dad wasn't able to make the trip with us. So it was just Connor and I going. And I'd had several months, I thought, to prepare myself. I was looking forward to it. My birth mother had me excited. She said, I always thought about you on your birthday. Your brothers and I always had a cake for you. And she said, I knew you would come find me. She said, I just want you to know that I loved your father, that I would have been with him if I could have. You know, she had me feeling positive about it. So it was just my daughter and I. We were up there the week of her first birthday in November 2002. And we flew into Toledo Express Airport, which is super small. It's maybe the size of a large bedroom. I mean, it's super (laughs) small airport. And there was a lady on the plane with me who said, why are you so nervous? And I just blurted out as I'm going to meet my birth mother. I've never met her. And that lady said, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. She said, honey, I will walk off the plane with you. I will hold your hand. You're not going to do this alone. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay. So she was a very kind stranger. And at that point, with it just being me and my young daughter and not knowing what I'm going into, I welcomed that lady Absolutely. to walk with me. So. <laughs> When I got to the airport, got off the plane, sure enough, that lady was holding my hand and she was rubbing my daughter's head saying it's going to be okay. And this lady was crying. She was crying more than I was. Wow. So there's an, there's an escalator. You have to go down to the main floor. So I was at the top of the escalator and I looked down and I'm like, oh, holy moly. There's my birth mother, her husband, my two brothers, their spouses and their children. And It's a lot, you know, going down to that. I got to the end of the escalator, got down at the bottom, and my birth mother came up and just grabbed me and hugged me. I mean, really squeezing me like a bear hug. And she took my daughter and was just covering her with kisses. And I have a brother who's just a year younger than I. He came up. He was crying. He's very sensitive, very kind. And everybody else, the kids were looking at me like, hey, how are you? But the other brother and his wife were looking at me like, hmm, one of these is not like the other. So they were kind of studying me. And that took me right back to southeast Alabama when the family would study me and guess, well, who are you? What do you come from? The next day, Linda, Connor and Linda's birth mother drove to Columbus, Ohio to pick up the woman's sister, Linda's maternal aunt. Her aunt was also born at six months old, similar to Connor at six and a half months. Her aunt had been blind since birth, possibly a complication of the anemia Linda's maternal grandmother lived with. As Linda sat in her birth mother's back seat, she could see the woman peeking in her rearview mirror at her. Just like Linda had been checking out her birth mother, the woman was checking out Linda too. She looked at me and she smiled and she said, you have his eyes. And I said, really? And she said, yes, you have his eyes. And I said, you think so? She said, a little bit darker than mine, but you have his blue eyes in the same shape. She had never told me my birth father's name before then. And she said, I'm going to tell you his name. And she told me a name. The last name was Popovich. And she said, you're Russian. You're Russian and Polish. Might be a little Finnish too, but you're definitely Russian. I said, oh, okay. She said, and yes, he was 14. When you were born and I was 18, she said, does that make you uncomfortable? Does that bother you? And I just, I, I was in strange territory. So I just said, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. All good. I'm okay. 
even though I did have some problem with it, I didn't want to come out and say it because just meeting her and I want to get more information. But at that point, I didn't want to anger her. I didn't know how she would react. Right. So we picked up her sister and brought her back to Toledo. But over the course of the week, things started. it, It was really weird how things changed. My birth mother would not speak to me. She would stay in her bedroom. She would not come out. And it would just be my daughter and my blind aunt and I sitting on the couch with nobody talking. It was Hmm. very uncomfortable. Yeah. And then I said, would you like me to show you where I used to live? I don't think it's far from here and where I used to go to school. And she said, I don't care. Okay. Wow. So I said, okay. And then I said, I can show you the house my parents built. And she said, do not ever refer to those people as your parents again. So that was upsetting. Wow. And I remember calling my daughter's dad and I said, I cannot wait to get home. We're coming home tomorrow. This isn't going like I had hoped it would. And he said, well, yeah, just come on home. You'll be okay. I woke up the next morning because we were going to fly home to Florida. And there was two feet of snow out in the yard. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm never getting out of here. It was like the movie Misery, you know, (laughs) I was like, I'm going to be James Caan. I'm going to be hobbled before I get out of here. It's not going to work. So fortunately, a snowplow cleared the road. We were able to get to the airport and my daughter and I were able to fly home. We flew from Toledo Express to Detroit and then on home to Tampa. And I got home, and when I left, though, my birth mother acted like she couldn't have cared less. She's like, well, I got to go to the grocery store. I got to do this. I got to do that. Bye. And I thought, okay, this is just really weird. And I noticed that my brother, who said, I want to see you when you leave. I'll see you at the airport. He was not there. So I just assumed nobody liked me. They didn't want to be around us. So I'll go home. I'll just cut my losses and go home. And I got home and didn't really have any contact with her. I did not reach out. But then she called me and she said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, what? She said, I need you to give me Connor to raise because I didn't get to raise you. What? Oh, yes, sir. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I I said, excuse me? And she said, well, I didn't get to raise you. So let me raise Connor and you can come visit her when I think you should. And I said, no, no, but thank you for asking. No. I said, I'll raise my daughter. Thank you. She said, but you said you're having problems with their dad and you're going to break up. I said, yes, that's true. But I can do this. I'm fine. I said, I was raised by a single mother. And she screamed at me. I don't want to hear that. That is not your mother. I'm your mother. And I said, okay, I'm going to end the conversation. I wish you well. And I hung up. And that was the most disconcerting conversation I've ever had. I was worried. I even called the police. I said, you know, I'm getting these threatening calls from Ohio. And they said, don't worry about it. You're here. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't worry about it. uh, That is astonishing. I cannot believe that she felt even comfortable saying such a thing. That is absolutely nuts. And and it goes back to also you said 
Something else that was incredibly concerning about when she was pregnant with you, the fact that her mother got so upset that she beat her and basically tried to end your life. Yes. There's a, there's a lot of. It's, this is mm, why I, I always, I'm afraid to tell people my story. I said, because it's so bizarre there. Nobody's going to believe me, but other people who are adopted are the ones who understand some of the stories that, adoptees have I thought well it's not just me who has had this ridiculous experience sometimes yeah and I felt so alone because and I remember saying how am I ever going to tell someone oh she wants my daughter how do you even say that I know that's absolutely crazy then she kept she started writing me letters telling me that I was a demon that she decided I was sin that even though she was an atheist, she she would go along with this sin, but she was not the sinner. It was my fault for being born. If I'd had any consideration for her, I would not have been born. And it was just absolutely bizarre. These are things people don't say, and it scared me. So I was glad to be five states away from her. Oh, for sure. Oh, my God. And then a couple years go by, and she contacts me. She sends me an email still have my email address because I never changed it. And she told me that she decided that my daughter was not born premature, that I was a liar, that I actually had Munchausen by proxy. And that's why my daughter was in the hospital all the time. Mm, mm, And I just said, I I blocked her email. I didn't have anything else to do with her. I said, I'm done with this. I don't need the headache. I had enough of it with my aunt growing up. I'm done. I don't need it. So then I have the police at my door and a representative from Department of Children and Families telling me there had been a report made that I had Munchausen's by proxy and was abusing my daughter, poisoning her and forcing her to walk on broken glass. And I said, you're welcome to see my child. You can see her medical records. So this was a whole nightmare. I was under investigation by the Department of Children and Families. And I did not want to lose my daughter. I didn't understand what was going on. And I told when I told the DCF caseworker, I said, this is my birth mother. This woman has been in my presence and my daughter's presence for only one week out of our lives. I told her, I said, she's harassing me and I don't know how to get out of this. That's and they looked at me. They looked at me like I had lost my mind. They looked at me like if like I was making up the story which I was not. And then my daughter's father, who had been arrested eight times for domestic violence, on the ninth time, they locked him up for stalking. They gave him a year. But at the hearing, when he was asked, why are you doing this? And he said, well, her mother told me to do these things. And I said, my mother's dead. And the judge said, what, what's going on here? You know, he, he couldn't make sense of it. And I told the judge, I said, my mother died in 1997, and here we are in the mid-2000s, you know, having this conversation in a court. And he said, well, what mother? And I said, my birth mother. I'm adopted. And he said, so she's the one telling him to make these threats and to hurt you? And he said, yeah, she's the one telling me to do it. So then we found, that's how we found out she was behind everything. So my daughter's dad finally backed off. He got his time in jail and he didn't bother us. He learned his lesson. 
So, but my birth mother, go ahead. Uh, so this is, oh my god, It's gosh. a lot. This, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So she, one, has you at the house and mm -hmm. goes from sort of examining you in the backseat and introducing you to her sister to avoiding you in her house and mm -hmm. being completely indifferent to whether you stay or go. And right. then you guys part ways. You don't really talk. And the next time you talk, she says, I want to raise your child, which is yep. astonishing. I just cannot believe those yep. words came out of her mouth. And then my daughter's in the room with me now and she's nodding her head because she knows this whole story. <laughs> Connor, I cannot believe this. This is absolutely nuts. Yeah. And so then she tries to turn things on you and accuse you of having Munchausen syndrome, mm -hmm. which is basically like people seeking medical attention that they don't need exactly. and falsifying and exaggerating their exactly. medical conditions. Even I get the impression that you also self-inflict things to so that they can get medical attention, but you've done none of those things. So she's making up stuff to get you in trouble with the authorities in your hometown five states away. Yes. And her hope was that she would be handed custody of my daughter, which would never happen. And now Connor's first three years due to her prematurity, Connor's first three years of life, she had doctor appointments almost weekly. Mm -hmm. She had to be monitored for retinopathy of prematurity and she had to get RSV injections and she had asthma. She only has one fully functioning lung and she was hospitalized a lot during those first three years. Mm -hmm. And my birth mother knew that and tried to use it against me saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with that baby. The mother's nuts. Let me have the kid. Mm -hmm. That was her ultimate goal. So at that point, I ceased any contact with her. I said, nope, don't want it. And the police even told her, do not call again. Mm -hmm. But she was calling the police in Tampa constantly. They even knew the story by then. Finally, we had a couple of years peace there. Linda and Connor lived a few years with no harassment from Linda's birth mother. Randomly one year, Linda's maternal half-brother, the kinder, more sensitive guy, reached out with a Christmas card. Linda was cautious about engaging with him, so she held off responding. A while later, he sent another card trying to connect with Linda, so she responded with thanks for checking in on her. The man asked if it was okay if they were in contact as long as they didn't get their mother involved. Linda agreed on the condition that her birth mother would have no part of their sibling contact at all. Eventually, Linda's birth mother found her on Facebook and started harassing her online. Linda blocked her. Her birth mother found her daughter Connor on Facebook too. She blocked her. With their mother out of the picture, Linda and her brother communicated more regularly sending one another holiday and birthday cards and touching base twice a month. Linda liked communicating with her half-brother, and things were going good because he didn't talk about their mother. It was difficult for him to talk about things from his childhood. He said, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I said, oh, you're not. It's fine. I said, I have to understand that adoption affects you as well. That was a big thing for me to mm. finally quit thinking this is all about me that he was affected too. Yeah, that's a great point. And he's so nice. He's I, I think he was hurt a lot when he was growing up. And when my birth mother died, it was January 4th, 2018. After that, I, I have to tell you, I actually felt a little sense of relief. I did not, 
I didn't mean it mean, but you know, Connor and I will not be harassed anymore. Right. We don't have to worry. Yeah. And after that, my brother and I started communicating more and he started telling me a little bit more each time. I never would ask. I wouldn't pressure. I want him to tell me things if he wants to. If he doesn't, that's okay. If I don't know, I don't know. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But he would start telling me more things about his childhood. I get the sense that she was a very domineering parent, always in his business. And one thing he did tell me that she lied a lot. He said, you couldn't believe anything mom said. She'd tell you one lie and back it up with another. Thought, okay, that's interesting. And as the time progressed, uh, fast forward to last August, 2022, I was in New York and my brother called me and we were speaking, had a great conversation. And he said, why don't we do something together in the fall, can you come up to Ohio and visit with me? And I said, yeah, I think that would be good. I said, my dad's birthday was October 29th. I haven't seen his grave since 1976. Mm. I can take Connor, you know, and it'll be the first time we'll get to something as siblings. And my brother said something, well, you actually are very well adjusted to have come from rape. And I'm like, what? Excuse me? Wow. And he said, well, mom, told us that she was right that your birth father raped her and she wanted to have an abortion but there was no such thing then i said that's not what she told me mm. he said he said well i don't know what she told you i said brian i need to tell you what she told me he he acted like he didn't want to hear it but i said you know it's time to put on your big boy pants you gotta listen mm. i said she told me my birth father was 14 she was 18 and they had been a couple since he was 12 and she was 16. And he says, well, I've, I've never heard that. He said, I, I don't know. And she's not here to defend herself. I said, well, I don't know how you would defend that anyway. And I wasn't arguing with him, but I got a little firm with him. I said, you need to realize those are the circumstances. And he said, but after you left, it's been a mess. She told people that you're not her child, that you're just trying to extort her. I said, what does she have that I would extort? That makes no sense. Oh and he says, well, she said you weren't hers. And then the story changed to, well, I was raped. Her father raped me and that's how it came to be. And I didn't even want to have her. I said, that does not coincide with what she told me. I said, and I have letters that I can show you the same story. And I took pictures of them and sent them to him through a text. And he saw the letters in her handwriting where she professed her love for my birth father and elaborated on the ages. And, you know, I said, you can't really refute that. And he said, well, okay, but I don't want to talk about it. So I said, okay, you don't want to talk about it. Fine. But that's the truth. And when I went to Ohio last October, Connor actually wasn't able to go with me, so I went by myself. My brother and I, you know, we had a good time. We showed where he showed me where he lived. I showed him where I had lived, and we went to my father's grave, and we just, we had a good time. But there was the elephant in the room. He did not want to discuss adoption or the birth mother. Mm -hmm. The only time he brought it up was 
well, I just want you to know that you're my sister. I love you and I support you. And I understand that mom lied, but I guess we'll never know the truth. I said, we know the truth. She wrote it in that letter. And he said, have you done ancestry DNA? I said, I will when I get home. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got to the root of the truth. I got home. I did ancestry and my daughter did hers. And mine came back. Sure enough, my birth father was four years younger than my birth mother. But the name she had given me was not the name of my actual birth father. Wow. So mm-hmm. I thought, holy moly, how many more turns are we going to have here? It was a different man. The last name is still Russian and a percentage of Polish and Baltics. So she was right about the Russian, Polish, Baltics. She was right about that. But it was a different name. The name that she gave me did not show up related to me on the paternal side, but it showed up as a fifth or eighth cousin on her side. Oh, interesting. the person that she said was my birth father, he was actually her same age and not related to me. Nothing with his family would, no matter how how hard I tried to connect this, it didn't work. So the person that she named was not relevant at all as birth father, but your birth father was in fact younger than she was. Is that correct? You got it. As Uh, the social worker said, bingo. Remember mm. (laughs) as the social worker said, bingo, that's exactly it. Mm, mm, And I told my brother, I said, okay, this is the name of my father. And I found pictures of him and I look like him. Yes. Connor said, you asked me all the time which is true. I would say, how do I look like him? Do I look like him? And she'd say, oh yeah, there's the nose, the eyes. And when I wear my glasses, there's a picture of my birth father when he was 16 in glasses. It it looked almost identical, same kind of glasses, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And when he died, there was a picture with his obituary. He died in 2021. So I never met him in the picture. He looked like Captain Kangaroo. Do you remember Captain Kangaroo? Yeah, yeah, I remember that guy. He looked like him, Mm -hmm. but I could see myself in him too. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no denying that. And sure enough, on Ancestry, all of these Russian and Polish names, I did not realize Toledo, Ohio had such a huge Russian-Polish community, but it does. Apparently, I'm related to that whole community in Toledo. (laughs) And there are four siblings from the birth father. And I put that on Facebook. I just I just kind of liberated myself and put it out there. Here's the picture of my birth father. This is not the one that I was told was my father, but this is the actual father. And my brother contacted me and he said, I just want you to know I love you and I support you. And I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you have an answer. I'm sorry mom lied to you and caused all these problems for you. And my niece contacted me and she's from my other brother. She said, yeah, grandmama lied a lot. She said the name that she said was your father. My niece was the only one she told. She never even told her husband who my birth father was. She would never discuss the adoption with him. So I was finding out a lot of the things she had told me, like, oh, I celebrated your birthday. That was a lie. They never did that. Mm -hmm. And my brother didn't even know I existed until he was 15 and wanted to play baseball. 
needed a birth certificate to present to the school, you know, for health and insurance purposes. And on his birth certificate, it said numbers of live births, and it said two. And I was the oldest, there was him, and our other brother was younger, so he hadn't been born at that time. And that's how my brother found out that there was somebody else. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I felt so bad for him because I wasn't the only one that had been lied to. He had been lied to. So many people have been lied to. And I just, I will never understand why you lie about a human being. You know, just it's so much easier to say, hey, this is what happened. This is how you came to be. I don't understand why she had to create all these lies instead of telling the truth. But I guess she thought it was embarrassing because with the age difference between her and my birth father. And I think she was ashamed of that. And she never wanted them to judge her for it. I think she feared being judged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. But you're right. Like the number of lies that she concocted was astonishing but it doesn't sound yeah. like it was necessarily about just you because you've said that some of her other relatives have said yeah grandma lied a lot so she oh yeah she wasn't lying about you in those instances she was lying about a bunch of stuff so there was clearly some mental disconnect there that had her constantly fabricating fictitious stories if for seemingly unnecessary reasons i don't know what she lied about but you know, as you said, why lie about a human being that's here? Yeah. Presumably she was lying about a whole bunch of other stuff that I make the assumption she didn't need to tell fibs about. So that's sad to hear because that means that she was running from stuff all the time, constantly trying to elevate herself or, yeah. you know, her position yeah. in the eyes of others without just facing reality. And that's a really tough way to live. That's, that's sad to hear. It's, and at one time, before I knew about all the lies, I, I had empathy for her. I had empathy and compassion, but I, I just don't feel it. I, I lost that feeling. And when she mm -hmm. died, I didn't have any feeling for it. I felt no connection whatsoever. It was okay. I'm so, I, I told my brother though, I said, I'm sorry, my condolences for your loss, but I did not say because our mother died because I don't think of her as our, my mother. Yeah. I never thought of her that way after that. Yeah. And your mother was pretty great too. And she, yeah, Grace had it going on now. Yeah. Grace was good. Grace sounded amazing <laughs> and you loved her very much and she loved you. And then your birth mother said, don't ever speak to me about her being your mother. Like that's just another unfortunate misstep that she made that could have been avoided. And so I could see how when your birth mother passed away, you didn't necessarily feel a huge connection. You were just more relieved that right. that drama was yeah. gone. I, I know what you're feeling. It's Yeah, yeah that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, am I wrong for that? But yeah. then ultimately I just said, no, I'm not. There, and I don't mean this callous in any respect, but there are people that die every day who I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry that they die, but that doesn't mean that I internalize it. And I know that sounds cold. I don't mean it that way. No, I, but I after what you're saying. You didn't after necessarily have had... a relationship with her either, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then what little relationship you guys attempted to have, she sabotaged by yeah. telling everybody around you that you were a bad parent. Awful. 
awful. Exactly. And I think after I think after she had told me the truth about my birth father, she probably thought, oh, wow, I shouldn't have done that because now she's going to tell my family and I never told them. So my feeling is she concocted all these lies to make me look crazy. So nobody would believe me if I ever told them. Yes. And just hearing this, it, just hearing this fall out of my mouth sometimes, I can't even believe it myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's, and I asked my brother, I said, this is what I'm thinking. He said, yeah, probably so. He said, because she would never have owned up to your birth father being 14. She never would have admitted that. Wow. Oh. Linda, that's a, that's a wild story. But do you know, I got to tell you, one of the things that I hear in your voice is <laughs> sort of relief for what you've been through, but also strength <laughs> for who you've turned out to be. And it sounds like a lot of that was on the foundation of what grace gave you. Right. Is that right? It is. It is. Grace is the grace baby in heaven. Now I'm, I'm saying grace built that foundation. And she, I remember hearing her and my aunts talking one time and my mother said half jokingly, she said, now, I don't worry about Linda, but Patty better marry well. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's an odd thing to say. Mm-hmm. I was about 14 or 15. And I asked her later, I said, why don't you want me to marry well? And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, because you said you don't worry about me, but you want Pat to marry well. She goes, no, you're going to be able to take care of yourself. She said, you're going to be able to handle it. And whatever it is, you're going to get through it. Whether you like it or not, you're going to do it. Excellent. And I'm like, wow, that that was kind of daunting at the time. But sure enough, you know, I was a single parent for most of Connor's life. And having lost my parents young and then my sister died in 2008, it's been just me. But there for the grace of God, grace with God. That's how I get through it, I guess. I love it. That's really cool, Linda. Thank you so much for sharing openly. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I love giving folks this platform to share their whole story in its entirety. And I'm so glad that you were transparent about everything that you've been through. This is, that was quite a, quite a journey, especially through childhood, but it sounds like you've made it through pretty well and you and Connor are doing just fine. We are. And I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and share because I will tell you your podcast has been therapy for me. It's very therapeutic. I, I hear things that only other adoptees can relate to. Mm -hmm. I will sit in my little office at work and listen to this podcast. And I sometimes speak along to it like, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. I know that. I know. I hear you. I know. I say, I hear you. Yep. I'm nodding along too. I'm very grateful for the platform you give us and the opportunity. I think you're doing a great thing and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate every guest who comes forward because it takes some bravery. Like you said at the beginning, when we were talking before the show, Like you were concerned about some of the things that you had to share and how it was going to trigger others. And I think there's a lot of people out there that sit in that. Like, I want to tell my story, but I just don't want to trigger other people. But as we discussed, this is like we have to tell the truth. If we don't tell the truth, then we continue to let others live in the dark and feel alone. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I like to help everybody else tell their stories, because it helps people to not feel alone, not feel like they did something wrong, that their life is a mistake, that right. you know all of these things that we sit with as adoptees, um, mm-hmm. many of them are wrong. And yeah. allowing us to share our voices is important so that we can 
feel like we're supporting each other. And something in your story today has supported someone else. And I'm glad you told it. So thank you. I sure hope so, because I was in a dark and lonely place for a long time. And then when I just decided, you know, I can't hide things. I have to be honest and open about who I am. I'm not ashamed. I didn't choose to be creative, but... I'm here, and it's been an interesting life. It's been a crazy 57 years, but I've welcomed 57 more. Fantastic. I hope they're wonderful years, all that you have left, Linda. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Linda has lived a roller coaster in adoption and reunion, but she sounds so strong on her foundation that her adoptive mother, Grace, provided. It definitely made me sad to hear about how her extended family in Alabama treated their family after they moved. But it only takes one positive influence, like her grandmother, to show acceptance and love to help a child feel worthy of being where they are. When Linda found her birth mother, it sounded like things were going to be great, But to get the cold shoulder in the woman's home, to be stalked, lied about, and reported to the police after the woman asked to raise Linda's daughter, Connor, was like nothing I've ever heard before. I'm very glad Linda's maternal half-brother was supportive, that Linda got to see pieces of her own face in the likeness of her birth father, and that Connor is healthy, happy, and thriving in the powerful glow of her mother's resilience to stand strong through everything. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Linda's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? And if the show is meaningful you, please take a moment to leave a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The ratings are a way for me to be reminded that the show is having an impact for the adoptee community, and your ratings really do help others to find the podcast and get something positive from adoptee voices just like you have. Thank you so much.